Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Today is an absolute treat for me. I first came across this amazing neurosurgeon back in 2006 when I was a neurotrauma case manager, and she published an amazing book that I purchased and I couldn't put down. I literally read it in one day. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Katrina Furlick. She's currently the Chief Medical Officer and the co-founder of Health Prize Technologies. It's an internet company with a very novel approach to medication, non-adherence, and one of the most significant problems in healthcare. Before founding Health Prize, Katrina was a neurosurgeon in private practice at Greenwich Hospital in Greenwich, Connecticut, and she was also on the clinical faculty at Yale University School of Medicine. She's had numerous scientific publications, and she is the author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Outside. So Dr. Katrina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Deb. It's such an honor to have you, and it's been a number of years. I remember putting your book down and thinking, I need to have Dr. Katrina come to our city in London, Ontario, because you weren't that far away in Connecticut, and we were all set to organize things, and then you discovered you were expecting your first baby, and we never got to make that happen. (laughs) Yes. And that baby is now 13, so where does the time go? I, I don't know, and, and I'm 13 years older too. Well, I'm just, I'm so delighted, and I know you're a busy, busy lady, so I'm going to jump right into our interview. I wanted to know, I know you grew up and your dad was a surgeon. What compelled you to want to get into medicine and pursue neurosurgery? Well, it was a number of things. Obviously, my father did have an influence, but... Um, not during my early childhood. Uh, You know, it wasn't until college when I really decided to go into medicine. Um, And then becoming a neurosurgeon, once I decided to become a doctor, was a very easy choice for me because the brain was far more interesting to me than the skin or the kidneys or the lungs. So the the brain had to be my focus. Um, But, you know, going back to my father being a surgeon, you know, I, I heard many stories around the dinner table of people that he had helped and strange cases. And that kind of always lingered in my mind. Um, and I think came out later when I made the decision. And I thought, yep, yeah, this, this sounds like the right thing for me. Well, I know it was an amazing journey. And I know part of that's uh, alluded in your book. I also know that you were the first woman admitted to the largest neurosurgery residency program in the country at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. How did that feel when you realized that you were the first woman to be accepted? Well, it was, well, it's a great honor to, to be, you know, the first in anything. Um, but obviously there were, uh, you know, a handful of women uh, in the early years, decades prior, who really paved the way and they, they did the, 
the real workload of, of you know, getting their foot in the door with the field. But um, I have to say that I intentionally didn't focus on the fact that I was the first and only woman. Um, uh, well, actually, a few years later, there was a second woman that joined, luckily. But uh, I, I tended not to focus on that very much because there was so much else to focus on. So I, 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 I probably under, um, you know, appreciated the importance of that and um, instead focused on the job at hand. Well, I think it's such an incredible feat. And what part of your education or even starting your residency and becoming a surgeon, what compelled you to want to author and write Another Day in the Frontal Lobe? Well, I had collected notes along the way and not with any, with any intention of writing a book, um, but I had collected three by five cards in my white coat pocket and whenever I saw something interesting or I had a, a strange thought about something I'd seen or a patient I had helped, I would write it down and I, and I had this huge stack of three by five cards that I eventually decided to just type into my laptop um, over the course of a few months. And, and at the end of that, I realized, gosh, this is actually a lot, of, a lot of notes. And I'm glad that I took those notes because it helped to refresh my memory of specific cases or interactions with a colleague. And my original goal, just because I like writing and I think writing is fun, was to publish an essay. And I had this very lofty goal of maybe the New Yorker would like something like this. And of course, that's, that's too high of a reach. But I was able to find a, an editor and, um, I'm sorry, an agent in New York City. And that agent in New York called me and said, I really like what you've written, but it should be a book instead, not just an essay. So it took a little bit of convincing because writing an entire book was pretty daunting and, and time consuming, but I realized that I certainly had enough material for, for a book and that was the beginning of it. Well, it's not too often I can say I buy a book and I couldn't put it down, but I, I felt like I knew you when I was reading the book. I felt like I could hear your voice, but more importantly, I loved the way you wrote and expressed your emotion in some of the stories. And I was wondering if there's, there's one story, I know there's many that come to mind that just really took you by surprise, uh, whether it was in the hospital, when you were doing surgery, or when you started your residency that kind of is, is fond and, and lies in your memory. Oh boy. Um, well, there, there are so many. I, I'm, it's hard for me to choose any, any particular one, but um, you know, I have to say when there's an unexpectedly good outcome, that's obviously something that's um, something that every surgeon loves. Or um, you know, I can remember a case when I was still in training, and this is a, you would think, a very small detail, but for this particular patient ended up being a huge detail. Um, a young woman with epilepsy needed surgery and she was obviously frightened of the surgery itself, but she was actually uh, equally terrified, believe it or not, of the fact that she was gonna have to have her whole head shaved um, and her long, beautiful hair um, shaved off. Uh, and that was my mentor's tradition was, was to do that and that's the way he learned. But I had actually learned uh, a different technique, which was parting the hair right where you had to make the incision 
and then doing a you know deep cleanse of the hair and allowing the patient to actually maintain most of their hair. So we made that decision at the beginning of surgery when she was already asleep because I had been trying to convince my mentor, you know, it would really be meaningful for this particular patient if, if we could try this, you know, hair sparing technique, which is now pr pretty common. Um, and he somewhat reluctantly said yes. And I, you know, proceeded to um, clean her hair and part her hair. And, you know, we made the incision together. Um, but what was amazing was seeing this patient wake up and expecting uh, to be bald. And we got to tell her that she saved her hair. So obviously that was a very tiny detail in the grand spectrum of things. Uh, you know, solving her epilepsy was, was goal number one, but that unexpectedly happy detail was, was, was great to, to be a part of. And, and that's one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on the show is you are such a heart-centered leader. And I think for you, it comes easy to just implement and utilize all those core leadership skills, compassion and empathy, and just taking the extra time. And how nice of a memory it is for you to remember probably the look on her face, not knowing and expecting to wake up with no hair. And it's just, it's all those little nuances. And I know there's many reviews about your book and, and that seems to be kind of the repetitive comment of, of people and, and how they feel about you. And, and how does that make you feel feel when you're kind of coined as a heart-centered leader? Well, I think, uh, well, obviously it's a, it, it's, you know, it's a great honor to be, to be called that. I, I don't know if I'd call that myself, call that, uh, you know, use that term myself, but I, you know, it makes me realize that I, I should be doing even more <laughs> as a leader, honestly. Um, I'd have to say that, uh, being a leader or somebody's boss doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. And I, you know, historically could have done a better job, I think, and, and in the future, um, taking a, a greater leadership role. Well, I think we're all meant to evolve and, and continue to grow as, as human beings. Now, I know that you made the decision to transition from being a neurosurgeon uh, to becoming a physician entrepreneur. And I was wondering if you'd share a little bit about that decision and kind of the timelines and what, uh, what led you or compelled you to make the change. Yeah, it was a very interesting and you know somewhat complex transition um you know neurosurgery you know was and is my first love and i over the years saw many innovations in in medicine along the way whether they were technical or, or social and i met a lot of entrepreneurs partly through my husband who's a venture capitalist that's his job is to uh, get to know early stage entrepreneurs and invest in their companies. So I was inspired seeing other, not just physicians, but, but even non-physicians um, innovate in medicine. And one thing as a neurosurgeon that is difficult to deal with is that we're at the end of the line for, for so many things. Um, we're, we're trying to help after many problems have kind of built on, you know, one on another, whether it's, you know, trauma and you're dealing with a gunshot wound and that should have never happened because of all the social issues or somebody forgetting to wear a seatbelt or um, not taking their hypertension medicines for years and then all of a sudden they have a, 
you know, a blood clot from bleeding in the brain. You know, those are the sort of things that, that are very difficult to deal with. And I wanted to make a difference more at the front of the line as opposed to the end of the line and met up with a couple other entrepreneurs and was inspired to start my own company. Um, you know, there's many more details than that, but um, at first I actually thought maybe I can do both. Maybe I can be an entrepreneur and a neurosurgeon, but I quickly realized, you know, what patient wants a part-time neurosurgeon and realized that was not going to be a tenable, tenable solution. So I did, I did a transition um, out of my practice and luckily found uh, a wonderful replacement um, in my role. Well, and I'm excited to talk to you about that. And I was gonna, I was gonna joke with you and say that you finally realized during that transition a whole new meaning for cognitive fatigue, right? <laughs> That's true. We, we have to, we have to have some brain jokes during this interview yes. now. That's a good yes. <laughs> exactly. Now, your new company is called Health Prize Technologies, and I loved how you framed that, saying looking at innovative ways. Now, HealthPrize creates direct-to-patient medication adherence programs for branded therapeutics. So what are some of the goals outside of engaging and educating and motivating certainly your patients to help them with their chronic illness or condition? What is the goal to adherence? What were you really trying to uh, achieve when you came up with this idea? Well, the most exciting part was that we were taking a different view of the problem. And the problem at hand is that it's often difficult to stick with medications, especially when you're not feeling any differently when you take them. Or maybe you even have a minor side effect that's quite annoying or the medication's expensive. So it's a, it's a systemic problem that especially for patients with silent diseases like hypertension or, or diabetes or high cholesterol, that it's difficult to stick with medication long-term, even though it can improve your outcome. So we took a different view that if you can give somebody some short-term benefit from taking that medication rather than just long-term benefit, that might entice them to take a medication day-to-day. -day. So you know, pairing incentives, literally earning points for taking medication, earning points for refilling on time, but then equally important and probably long-term more important, educating them about their disease and why they need to stick with the medication. Pairing those two things was, was more of a behavioral approach to long-term adherence. And again, as I mentioned in my own practice, I saw the downstream effects of patients not sticking with medication, you know, strokes or heart attacks or things that could have been prevented. And that was really, really difficult to see. And so my goal with, with this company was to prevent those, those downstream complications by a more human-centric behavioral approach. Which again is heart-centered. And I'll tell you one of the things that I really love just about the languaging, Katrina, is from a case management perspective, I always found the word compliance was overused and negative, and mm -hmm. we didn't need to, you know, reiterate to the patient about their passive behavior. So I was thrilled to see that you chose the word adherence, which is very proactive, very positive when it comes to behavior, but you're helping them be motivated and educating them to that lifestyle change because they have that daily 
regimen. So where did you, where, you know, when you were wordsmithing and ki kind of coming up with the model for this, was that something that you migrated to easily, the word adherence, or did you toy between being compliant versus adherence? Well, that was actually a trend that was already in the works. And for exactly the reason you, you mentioned, it, it, the word compliance comes across as too heavy handed and as if the doctor is demanding you do something when really it's, it's about the patient wanting to do something um, for their own health. So that was already a trend in the works. I mean, what we brought that was fresh to the, to the medication adherence field was, was our approach, was the fact that we were actually trying to make it more enjoyable, even adding an element of fun, which previously wasn't, wasn't a, a tactic being used. You know, it was all about either reminders uh, or cost reduction, which is clearly also uh, critical. But uh, we, you know, we thought just reminding someone, someone isn't going to do the trick. It's like reminding someone to uh, save for retirement, you know, which is actually a very similar problem where the, where the benefits are long-term rather than short-term. You have to help people understand why the daily adherence is important and, and motivate them in a fun way. So really it was, you know, I, I would love to be able to take, uh, take credit for the, the word adherence over compliance. That was um, not our doing, but, but our approach was certainly and is, um, you know, we're still the leaders in that fun approach that pairs incentives with, with education. And that's what we really brought to the table. Oh, I really, really love that. So how many years old is Health Prize Technology? When did you start it? I started the company in 2009. So it's now just about 11 years old, believe it or not. And um, what's pretty cool seeing over the years is that there's been a greater acceptance for our approach. Whereas in the beginning, um, when it was just me and my partner and a few of our early hires, there was a lot of skepticism. People would say, well, healthcare, that's not supposed to be fun. You're not supposed to bring, um, you know, elements of gamification, you know, in, into this sort of uh, regimen. And over the years, we've found that that, uh, that is more and more acceptable. And there are other companies that have gotten into that with whether it's uh, exercise adherence or other forms of adherence that realize actually bringing a fun approach is something that patients, patients often, often uh, relate to better. And so the adoption is better. So it's been great to see the evolution because the company is over 10 years old. Uh, the, you know, we were an early, early um, trend and now it's a more accepted trend, which is, which is really heartening to see. Well, I agree with you. And I'm, I'm just thinking about all the transferable skills that you bring as a surgeon over to a physician entrepreneur. What imperfection do you feel that you possess and has contributed greatly to your success and leadership, both as a surgeon and now a physician entrepreneur? Mm. Many imperfections. You're saying I just have to choose one. <laughs> okay. um, probably, I'm, uh, probably the fact that I don't, I don't crave being somebody else's boss or being a leader per se. I mean, obviously I have to be a leader when it's either I was a leader as part of a surgical team or a company founder who's, who's hiring people and setting agendas, but I don't, I don't naturally crave that leadership role. And in some ways that's good, in some ways that's bad. I would say it's good in the sense that I'm not a micromanager. Um, I, I prefer to kind of let people do their own thing and trust they'll do a good job and 
kind of have light oversight. Um, but it's bad in that I think some people want more of a uh, more of a uh, course correction and you know day-to-day -day guidance. So I think that's that's an imperfection that um, that uh, has definitely influenced the way I lead. Well, I love that, and I it, it's one of the biggest reasons I named the podcast that because I think we need more heart-centered leaders to be open and vulnerable and have integrity and humility and not, and not see that as a weakness in their leadership. And I love what you said about micromanaging because most leaders either tell me that they do it and they're trying to stop or that they don't do it. So that, that, that's always a fun discussion <laughs> and you, you, you lead your people and be that influential leader. And I think that you've done that very, very well. What's next on your list? What, what's something that Katrina wants to to kind of shoot for? Is there any big goal out there, whether it be personal or something with your business in the next two to five years? Yeah, well, I definitely want to see Health Prize uh, become even even greater success. It's been a success so far, but um, you know, even reaching even a greater number of patients and over a greater you know greater number of conditions. Um, so that's that's a big one on the professional front. Um, I also am now finally dabbling in writing a second book, which uh, is a long time coming. I've had many starts and stops with, with book ideas, but I finally realized that in order to you know, continue having an influence on readers, that I was going to transition into the fiction realm. So what I'm excited about now is writing my first novel, and my goal with that is to help spark people's interests in topics they might not have otherwise been interested in. So one of the things I loved about my first book was that I got a lot of comments on, oh, you, you inspired me to take my first neuroscience class, or you inspired me to consider medicine. That, that was very gratifying. With fiction, I'm hoping to do something similar. Um, but the fun part is that I get to pick topics above and beyond neurosurgery. So I'm going to have a neurosurgery theme with my first novel, but it's going to bring in uh, other elements that I hope will also spark interest. Well, you've sparked my interest and I, I'm so thrilled you're writing another book. And I wanted to tell you when I read Another Day in the Frontal Lobe in 2006, that it really changed me. And I want you to know that I felt your heart-centered leadership in that book when you eloquently wrote and told about the stories that moved you, whether it, you know, it moved you in a positive way or a negative way. You always had to stay the course and make some really difficult decisions as a neurosurgeon, but it allowed me to be a heart-centered case manager when I was looking after children and adults who had some element of, of neurotrauma. So it's just such a delight for me to get to tell you that personally, because I went on to lead for another seven years in my career doing that before I switched into coaching. And I know your book fostered some of that for me. So I just want to thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that. Thank you so much, Deb. That really and We were joking before we went live recording this and, you know, even though your book was written so long ago, sometimes you don't know the impact it has on people for years to come. And I think many more people are going to read your book. And one of the first people I interviewed 
on the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast, had written a book on Heart-Centered Leadership in 2003, and it just was reprinted three years ago. So she was far ahead of the curve, much like I think you were with your book. And I just think it's gonna pave the way for, for future residents who are looking to go into neurosurgery, especially females, because it's always nice, like you alluded, other women had paved the way, and I think you're going to foster and do that for, for up and coming women in medicine. So you should be very proud. Well, I appreciate that. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because literally just a few weeks ago, I, I was contacted by a woman who is a neurosurgery resident uh, on the East Coast, and she said, we'd love to have you, you know, do a virtual talk um, for our grand rounds, which is like a, you know, big talk for the whole department. And I unfortunately had to decline because it would have been 7 a.m. their time, and I'm, I'm now on the West Coast, so it would have been 4 a.m. my time. But um, she read my book, and a college and then again a medical school and then revisit it in residency so that that sort of that sort of um story for me is is really what makes me happy to have writ written that book in the first place well i read your book in one day and then i lent it out to somebody and i never got it back so what i learned from that was two things one never lend your books to people and two if you do make yourself a note so i'm going to get another book and i'm going to ask you to sign it and it's going to come back on my library where all my books on different elements of neuroscience sit and it'll be a treat for me to look at it now to to, <laughs> to know that i i spoke to her and and what a great time it was i like to end my podcast with what i call the fab four and it's just fun four fun questions whatever is on the top of your mind so my first one is what is your favorite self-care activity hmm. let me see well, I guess I, I usually wake up before the rest of my family. And one of my favorite things to do is pretty simple, is just to make green tea in the morning. Um, and I specifically like to use, if you're familiar with a matcha bowl, as opposed to a regular teacup with a handle. And I think that's actually helpful because it makes you focus on the tea you have to use two hands. So you can't be scrolling with one hand and sipping with the other. You really have to focus on it. So I think that's, that's a way of just starting the day in the right way. Well, and you know what? Another joke's coming here. So just another cognitive strategy, right? Fine motor skills, balance, visual <laughs> perception. <laughs> Good for you. I love that. Where is your favorite place on earth to visit and why? Ooh, let's see. Gosh, that's a hard one because there's so many places um, and, uh, you know, there's places we visit every year as a family, uh, which is Nantucket. Um, one of my favorite places in the world is Japan. But recently I've been thinking about, um, there's an island in the Caribbean called St. Bart's, if you're familiar with it. And it's a very unique kind of place because it's very, very French. So French cuisine, you know, everyone speaks French, French sense of style and refinement, but at the same time, it's kind of wild and Caribbean. So you'll be walking around and there's wild goats and maybe even a goat skull here or there and huge tortoises and strange crabs. So it's a very cool combination of wild and refined. 
it's it's a fun place. I've been there with my family, and uh, I have to agree. You get you get you can have the the wildness or the solace. It depends on what part of the island you're at, and they have lovely beaches there. Yes, that's a fun that's a fun place. What do you want your legacy to be? Uh, I would say. Well, I, I alluded to this a little bit before, but I, I like the idea of, you know, the reason I like writing is because you're able to transfer thoughts from one person's brain to another person's brain and then hopefully spark some degree of interest. And so I hope my legacy is that I can stimulate new interests uh, in people who read my, read my books. Um, and I hope to write many now that I have uh, a little more time and and motivation to do so. So I think the idea of inspiring someone to learn more about a topic or maybe even consider a certain career because of, of what they've read um, would be very gratifying to me. And you know, that's above and beyond what I hope my, my company accomplishes, but um, that's kind of a personal goal that I like because I hope to write into my old age, which is, which is, uh, not something you can do with with every career, but it's one that you can continue to have an influence in um, until you're not cognitively able to. <laughs> Absolutely. See, I was going to say you've got to you've got to insert a, a joke somewhere along here about the brain. <laughs> what advice would you give to the younger Katrina today? I let's see. Good question. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, going through various career changes, whether it's surgeon, writing, entrepreneur, um, is a little bit tumultuous. And I think part of that is because growing up, you think you have to pick one thing. And I think that's difficult, you know, especially now that I have a 13 year old daughter, you know, she'll say, well, some of my friends know what they want to be and I don't. And and I keep saying, you don't really have to know, and you might even pick something now and then decide on something, you know, a different thing later. So I think the idea of having one career or one goal for your whole life is, is a little bit um, misleading. So that's what I would say to my younger self. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I've done so many different things as an entrepreneur much like you're doing now, transitioning out of being a neurosurgeon. And I remember my dad saying to me, I was 21 at the time when my dad passed, but right before he passed, he said, you don't have to pick one thing. You don't have to have one career. Do what you love and you'll never work another day of your life. So who says we can't have a diversity and a smorgasbord of learning new things and like now your love for writing and you're such a good writer and and you do make an impact and and you certainly know that from myself and so many other people who have reviewed your first book so you've got the writing bug and who knows where it's going to take you so I just think that's such an important comment and I just feel so fortunate to know that your daughter's going to be raised by such a strong mom who's heart-centered and, and loving and just all the stories that you're going to be able to share with her. So 
I'm going to give you a kudos mom to mom there because that's an impo- that's an important element as a mom is to really foster and let our girls know that they have options. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I I'm sitting here just smiling and I, I'm going to pinch myself when we're done because I I again I know you're busy and I thank you for taking the time. I'm going to be excited to get your book. I think I might read it again. It's been 13 years and it's one of those things. I had an Irish Nana that said, it's always fun to revisit things because you always pick up another nugget. So I'll be excited to get your book and all the best to you, Katrina. And just know you got a big fan here in Canada and I look forward to the release of, of your next book and seeing you continue as a heart-centered leader. Well, thank you so much, Deb. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I want to end my podcast with my favorite five things. Follow your heart, have passion, do your best, always know your truth, and be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thanks for joining me once again on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.